Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, 50 years ago, American involvement in the Vietnam War officially ended. And within months, prisoners of war began to come home. The prettiest thing I ever saw was when I looked out the window and saw the Golden Gate. Uh, I want you all to remember that we walked out of Hanoi as winners. We're not coming home with our tail between our legs. We return with honor. It was a complex moment for the country as the war was deeply unpopular and ended with defeat. However, though returning troops often took the brunt of public anger about American involvement, the majority of prisoners of war got a warmer welcome. Now a half century after Operation Homecoming, the prisoners' experience is recreated in a new Massachusetts exhibit. Later in the show, they were left behind when the Vietnam War ended, the mixed-race progeny of American GIs. I was considered an outcast, so, you know, I didn't dare speak up against the bullies and what they were doing to Americans, so I felt a sense of, of guilt within me. The poignant and painful stories of these children, a living legacy of the unfinished business of the war, are imagined in a new historical novel, Dust Child, It's our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me remotely, Tim Sullivan, Vietnam War veteran and a former prisoner of war. Welcome, Tim. Glad to be here and have a chance to discuss this stuff. Rob Collings, president of the American Heritage Museum. Hi, Rob. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you for having me. And Frederick Logoval professor of international affairs at the John F. Kennedy School of Government and professor of history at Harvard University and the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book Embers of War, The Fall of an Empire and the Making of America's Vietnam. Hello, Professor. I'm so pleased to be with you. Hello. I'm so pleased to have you as well. And I'm going to start with you because I would like you to set a brief context um, for where the country was at when the Paris Peace Accords happened and the Vietnam War was officially declared over. Where was the country in responding to the return of the prisoners of war? Yeah, I think that Americans in, in early 1973 were... Uh, the vast majority were ready for this thing to be over. It had gone on a long time. It had had seen lots of American casualties, never mind, obviously, much larger Vietnamese, Cambodian, Laotian casualties. Americans, I think, were ready for this to be over. I think they felt, on some level, many of them conflicted. They wanted these deaths that had occurred to to be justified, for this to, to matter. And I think for many of them, that meant that hopefully South Vietnam would survive. And so then the question became, should the North Vietnamese violate the terms of these of these accords? What will the United States do? I think Nixon understood as president that it could not involve renewed American military involvement. In other words, that this chapter was closed, that, that it had to begin, uh, we had to begin anew in, in some level. But uh, the the context here, it seems to me, is that Americans uh, were ready for this now to be over. 
And that involved, uh, in the first instance, bringing the POWs, bringing the troops home. And I'd love you to address what I indicated a little earlier in the show, which is that it seemed as though in the in the response to uh, veterans returning home in general, there was a lot of pushback, public pushback. We 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 saw and heard a lot of that. But when the prisoners of war um, were released at the end, there seemed to be a different response. Yeah, I think my sense is that of the of the six hundred or so POWs who were released according to the terms of the agreement, so about five hundred uh, specifically specifically five hundred and ninety one, I think most of them encountered warm receptions when they returned. I think uh, families and others were delighted to have them back. Um, and um, I think it was a different response to these POWs uh, as part of Operation Homecoming than many had experienced before. I sometimes have veterans in my class, uh, and it's a small sample, but I'm struck by the degree to which those veterans who I interview in class and have par as part of the class will say, you know, we were actually treated pretty well when we came home. The worst part was a certain amount of indifference. People wanting to get on with their lives. They were not that interested in our story. But overall, I would say a, a, a positive response to the returning POWs. Rob Collins, you're the president of the American Heritage Museum, which has, in effect, recreated the experience of the POWs in the museum. And I want to hold you from talking about some of the details of that recreation and first ask you to talk about who were the POWs, because as we've learned, or as I've learned in preparation from, for this conversation, they were different from the POWs in World War II and the Korean War. Yeah, it's very true. We, we all know the POW MIA flag but we don't know exactly the stories behind it. And this allows us to learn more about those stories. The vast majority of those who were held in North Vietnam were airmen. They were pilots, bombardier navigators, and crew members that were shot down while flying over North Vietnam. You had pilots who were former Thunderbird pilots. One was an Apollo astronaut selectee. Um, this was an incredibly intelligent and well-educated population that was in this prison. And I think that is one reason why they were able to come together so well, to bond so well, and to survive what they endured. And one last question from you before we move over to talk to Tim Sullivan, who himself was a prisoner of war, to make clear that what you've recreated is the uh, a bit of the Hanoi Hilton, or what the prisoners of war named the Hanoi Hilton. It was the Hanaloa, uh, as I understand it before, if you pronounce it correctly for me, um, as a prison camp. And there, it was the most notorious of the many prison camps um, that the Vietnamese, where the Vietnamese held American prisoners of war. Yeah, the prison actually was known originally as Maison Centrale. It was a French colonial prison that went back to the uh, late 1800s it was built. Uh, it had actually been used by the French to hold a lot of the Vietnamese, including Ho Chi Minh himself. But during the war, they started to get these airmen shot down and they needed a place to put them. And it was this prison, Wa Lo, it was known as the time, uh, which is fiery furnace is what its translation is, um, was where a lot of these air crews cycled through 
for the first few weeks for interrogation. Some stayed there permanently. Others went on to different prisoner of war camps throughout North Vietnam. We also had prisoner of war uh, in China and Laos and in South Vietnam. So there were not only at the Hanoi Hilton, and the Hanoi Hilton was a name that Bob Shoemaker, the second uh, second man to get shot down and be interned, he'd made it as a joke. And a lot of these, uh, you look at the names of the different areas, there were a lot of different jokes that they were they were doing to keep the mood as light as possible. So Tim Sullivan, um, you were a prisoner of war during these times. I want to um, start with asking how old you were and what role you were playing when your um, aircraft got shot down and you got captured. Okay, I was I had just turned 24, and I was a bombardier navigator, you know, radar operator in a Navy F-4 off of the USS Coral Sea. And uh, we'd been flying uh, missions for probably three months, four months. Uh, and one day we just had this bad experience where the, we were following somebody who got us into a whole bunch of clouds and boop, the missile popped out. And we got, a far, we got far enough away from it that uh, neither one of us got hurt bad by the missile. But... Uh, the airplane took the brunt of the uh, brunt of the destruction, and it was uh, unflyable instantaneously. So it went from flying along, trying to figure out what was going to happen next, and then bang, uh, next comes along, and that means you're getting out of there. Here we go. Um, can you can you tell us what it was like, uh, your first impression of it? I mean, you had to be scared, I, I would imagine. And w- what what happened in those early moments, if you can remember? The place we got shot down was just like right outside of Hanoi. And my pilot got a ride in to the, to the Hilton in the helicopter. I got driven in there in a Jeep. And so it took uh, it took from the late afternoon until like at six o'clock or so. The good old French liberty, equality, fraternity was right across the top of the old the old gate they were using to get us in or to get me in there. And then I ended up being interrogated uh, like right after I got there and went through probably three or four hours of just basic interrogation. And then they were just doing the, you know, I'll ask you a question. You you give me an answer. If I don't like it, I'll smack you till I get the answer I like. And that lasted until I started to to have a nosebleed that the head interrogator didn't like me. Let my nosebleed drip onto the floor. So uh, I got yelled at for that, but they had to come in and clean it up. And uh, that time, they just sort of like took time for lunch and siesta, and then came back. You were held for a little over five years, and we want to hear more specifically about the treatment. Now, back to you, Professor, because there were rules and have always been rules of war. But what we have learned in the Vietnam War, at least when these prisoners of war were held, it didn't seem that they adhered to many of those, that the treatment was far different. 
I think it's it's broadly true. I mean, POWs in all wars, almost by definition, will have will suffer privations. Uh, that's just part of being a, a prisoner of, of war. But there are lots of examples, and Mr. Sullivan, I'm sure, experienced this and uh, can speak to it, of the degree to which this exceeded, in in not all instances, but many instances, what prisoners experienced. In, in terms of the deprivation, the malnutrition, the beatings, the kinds of um, solitary confinement and the duration of that solitary confinement um, is, if not exceptional, it's certainly at least to some degree, I think, you uh, um, unusual. Rob Collings, you did some interviews with some other prisoners of war and um Here's a little bit what I, of, of what we heard from them about at least one of the well-known techniques known as the rope. They put you in the ropes and lift you up until, the, in many cases, the shoulders just dislocated. I was screaming in agony when they came in. They came in and I had lost total use of my arms. I couldn't raise my arms. And I brought, but to this day, I have no idea what I told them. So, um... Rob, one of the things that you wanted to make everybody clear about in the museum was not only the this experience as we've discussed and as I'm going to ask Tim about in a second, um, but just just how hard it was in general and what what really the prisoner of war experience was like. Absolutely. The, the cells that we have are actual cells that came from the Hanoi Hilton in Vietnam. So when you walk into them, you're getting the feeling of what it was like to be in these cells. And one of the, the most powerful torture techniques is actually isolation. And the guys will tell you they spent sometimes four, five years in solitary confinement early on in the, in the, the uh, stay. After 1970, things changed. The rope tricks that you just spoke about were a common torture technique. Dislocating joints and shoulders and so forth is extremely painful, but it also doesn't leave scars on the outside. The Vietnamese understood they were fighting a propaganda war in the U.S., and they were fighting in the streets of the U.S., not necessarily in the jungles of Vietnam. That's where they were going to win. And if you started to show these, these airmen all beaten up, if they were doing some sort of confession or whatever it might have been, it looks coerced as it would have been. But by doing this, they were keeping the, the exterior integrity of the pilots and crew members intact if they're going to use them for propaganda purposes. And just a quick question to you, Professor. Why is it important that we understand this experience and, and particularly the Vietnam War experience of prisoners of war? Well, I think the the war itself is is really important for Americans to to understand in terms of why the U.S. got involved, why the war lasted as long as it did, how it ended, and why it ended. Uh, I think this uh, it can it contains it seems to me tremendous contemporary resonance uh, and importance going forward. Um, and I think more specifically on on this topic, I think to understand what those Americans who answered the call and who served in Vietnam, what they experienced when they became POWs, I think is also important for, for, for all of us to, to, to understand. That experience, those experiences differed among them. They weren't all the same. Um, but it seems to me that if we're to reckon, if we're to grapple with this 
difficult chapter in American history that includes thinking about trying to imagine and this this exhibit I think helps a lot trying to ex uh, to imagine what it was like for those Americans who went uh, and who became um, who became prisoners. So Tim, you were there a little over five years. That's not unusual for a lot of the prisoners of war. They were there quite a long period of time. After those early days, um, what was the hardest part? What was, Tell me your experience and what was the hardest part for you? I was, I was moved to a different part of camp, and then shortly after that moved to a different camp. And I was by myself for the next, I'd say it's like seven months, maybe six months. But the, the thing you have to understand about these camps, most of them were just, you were there in the, in the cell, whether you were by yourself or with other people. And we had various sort of ways of, you know, just like acknowledging the fact that other people were there. So you could tell that you weren't by yourself. We've heard about something called Hanoi University, where lots of the POWs learned from each other many things because they were in there together so long. Yeah, Hanoi University was the way that the different uh, people who were in the Hanoi Hilton would suck the knowledge out of one another's heads, is the way one of them put it. Um, you might speak Spanish. Tim might speak French. Frederick might speak German. We're all going to learn from one another different languages might be mathematics, it could be anything, as long as we're using our minds. Because sitting around doing nothing was the worst thing that could have happened. So a lot of the guys came out of there saying, well, I spoke four languages at the time. Um, I designed my own house. I knew exactly how many board feet of timber I needed, and, and they knew every little last detail. You had to do whatever you could to keep your mind occupied. That was, of course, a lot easier after about 1970 when they were putting more and more of the prisoners together in one room. Prior to that, prior to the Sante raid, they tended to be more in isolation, but it was it was a critical part of their survival. They all knew that everyone broke at one point in time, broke psychologically, had the worst day of their life, and that they were there to try and pick one another up. That's the story of survival that I think can resonate with everybody. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Tim Sullivan, Vietnam War veteran and former prisoner of war, Rob Collings, president of the American Heritage Museum, and Frederick Logoval, professor of international affairs and history at Harvard University. We're discussing how Americans think about the Vietnam War 50 years after the first POWs were released. So, Tim, the museum the American Heritage Museum, which replicates much of the experience that you and your fellow prisoners of war had, um, is going to be a permanent, or it is a permanent ex exhibition. It was put together in time for the 50th anniversary. And I wonder how you feel about the fact that it's a permanent museum and what you want generations of people to get from it by going there and, and hearing from other fellow POWs such as yourself. You got a you got a job to do. It's got kind of cruddy one day, but you still could do the job. Uh, and when it was all over and done with, uh, you finished that job. 
of being a POW, and you come out and you get back in and do uh, do whatever job or thing you want to do after that. Were you, um, do you think, um, greeted warmly when you came home and and well? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, the aggravation with Vietnam is there's, there's 10,000 stories, and they're all... They're all a little bit different, um, and most of the people that, if you actually, if they, if you sit down and talk to them, and they say, "Well, I, I had this happen to me when I got back," you'll find that most of it happened when they got off the airplane from Vietnam at one of the one of the big bases. Uh, they just yell and scream at him and throw stuff at him, maybe. Uh, but it wasn't a pleasant, uh, wasn't a pleasant way home. Uh, with us, we got people would be people would be there. They'd be you know waving stuff at you if they knew you. The, the, the military was usually pretty good about just letting them come out and say hello and go from there. May I ask you a larger question? Do you feel um, at peace with that experience and with um, just your just having survived that prisoner of war experience, and for that matter, having survived the Vietnam War? Oh yeah, that's definitely <laughs> having survived that thing is definitely a plus. I mean, there were any any places, any number of places along the way where if you screwed if I'd screwed something up, it probably would have had a different outcome. Um, so it's just a matter of knowing yourself and knowing the people you're, or knowing as much as you can about the people that are taking care of you or dealing with you or, um, however you, however you want to look upon it. Uh, the one thing that sort of helped us a little bit is that a lot of the guards in the, in the actual POW camp were people that went, <clears throat> people back in were put back into Hanoi as kind of like a an R and R routine to get them back up and running, so they'll probably go back in the go back into the jungle down in the south, or at least uh, you know come come sit on the anti aircraft guns and things like that all the way around Hanoi. And if you if if you could get them to to be sort of semi friendly and and stuff like that. Sometimes they'd show you where they where they'd been, you know, shot up and things like that. And they, they all of the majority of them that, that would do it just had all kinds of shrapnel from uh, you know from a, an experience that they were they were close enough to the to the explosion, but it wasn't. They weren't close enough to get killed by it. Tim, are you planning to visit the museum? Oh yeah, I'll work it into it, um, into my schedule. I mean, the problem right now is just finishing up on a, a medical a medical procedure, and um, it, it, everything had to get delayed and pushed out. But yeah. All right. How do you look back on those years, those little over five years while you were there in prison? I mean, personally, I just looked at it as this is something that happened. Um, it was all part of the. It was all part of the game. Um, you know, before you went there, 
they told you this is what you what could happen or might happen. Uh, they gave you training on making making sure all the gear worked and you knew what you were doing. Um, and you know they always let you know that if you don't want to do it, you know you can just walk off and uh, nobody's going to say anything about it. But it was part of the job for you. That's how you looked at it. You you went to do a job and. It was yeah. It was part of a job to do, and if you if everything went well, you know, you'd be back on the ship and do you know getting ready to go do it again. All right. Well, that's an incredible journey for you, I have to say, and um, your journey and others like you will be forever now preserved in this museum in Hudson, which is pretty important. Back over to you, Professor. We're talking about fifty years from the release from Operation Homecoming when these guys came back home after this very unpopular war. How would you say we've, that whole experience and the war itself has continued to influence, um, you know, how we think not only just about war, but just it, it, its influences throughout our, uh, our American society? Well, you know, listening to listening to you and Tim talk, I'm just I'm just struck by something that I think is 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 profound, at least to me as a as a historian of the conflict, which is the disconnect between what prisoners experienced, who uh, who were serving their country and who believed, uh, at least in most cases, maybe all cases, that in fact what their leaders were saying was true, that American security depended on defending South Vietnam, and it, it depended on sending them, sending Americans to fight um, in Vietnam. The disconnect between that and what we now know the leaders were actually saying behind closed doors, uh, which is, I think, true in the Johnson years, it's true in the Nixon years, namely that they were far from certain that the outcome, it seems to me, really mattered to national security. They were not, I think, optimistic uh, that they could prevail or that at least that South Vietnam would survive long term. So that's something that I think about in terms of how, what we should take away from this um, half a century on, as you, as, as you put it. And that's a troubling, for me, that's a troubling um, lesson and it's brought home to me with, with with renewed force listening to this conversation. I think it's also true that uh, for me the, that a lot of the troubles that plague us in, in US society today, the the, the cynicism, uh, the resentment, the sense of uh, that the mistrust we tend to have of one another, the way we question one another's motives, the breakdown in, in, in civic institutions. Um, I won't say that they all come from the Vietnam War. Uh, they have complex causes, but I do think that there were seeds sown during the Vietnam War era. Um, and in a sense, I think Americans went from being almost too naive and naively trusting their leaders at the beginning of the war to being too cynical um, uh, certainly deeply cynical by the end of the war. And so I guess my my suggestion is, my point is, Callie, that I think this war has had a, a very important effect on on us in this country, continues to have it, which is one of the one of the reasons why I think studying the war 
teaching classes about the war, reading about the war, and having exhibits like this about the war is so important. And Rob Collins, um, last word from you. You know, Americans, sadly, often are really ahistorical about many things, but certainly about um, periods of time in our history that were deemed unpopular, as the professor has just laid out. So having this museum, which, you know, lays out at least one part of the experience that I am very certain most people really know very little about, um, in the context of a war that happened 50 years ago, is really quite powerful. And I wonder if what you would like to have those who visit this museum take away from it. There's nowhere else in the world where you can go into a cell from the Hanoi Hilton and hear the story of what it was like to be there as an American during that time period. There are a couple of these cells left in Hanoi, but the storyline is very, very different. It is talking about the Vietnamese experience prior to what we call the Vietnam War, they call the American War, and they gloss over very much these these experiences of these over 600 air crew that were there, and a lot that never came home as well, and what they had to endure. But most of all, it's the story of how they survived, which I think everyone can be relate to, uplifted by. It's even though it's a horrible experience, there's lessons there of how they came together and pulled one another up for their survival. And you look at them today, and this is an incredibly well-adjusted group. The PTSD rate amongst POWs is like 4%. In the control group, it's in the 30s. Um, Why is it that these guys were able to survive and become so successful, as you said earlier, like John McCain and all these other men who came out of there? Um, So that's some storylines that we really need to uh, dig a little deeper into. The the museum is just open. It hasn't been open very long. What kind of response are you getting? Oh, the response has been phenomenal. We're having people come from all over the country and all over the world to see this. Um, I'm going to go back to that flag. Second most flown flag in the United States is the POW MIA flag. We see it every day on every government building, but we don't know what it really means. So this is the opportunity to understand a little bit more of what that POW experience was like and how horrific it was. Well, I thank all of you for joining me today to um, illuminate a period of history that we're still really learning about, as you've all said. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Kelly. Coming up, in 2012, President Biden signed off on a 13-year-long commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the Vietnam War. The yearly commemoration is meant to promote discussion about the impact of the war on veterans, family members, caregivers, and survivors. The annual recognition offers a perfect backdrop for the stories of the imagined children in the historical novel Dust Child. With poetic imagery, author Wen Fan Kuei Mai imagines the hell and heartbreak of the children and mothers left behind in Vietnam by American GIs. Dust Child is our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Thank you.